And speaking of back to school, earlier this week, we were talking with Cindy Dalglish, who is an education advocate, also has children in the school system in Surrey. And we ended that conversation saying, let's check back in after it's been a few days and we get a bit of a better idea on what's going on. So why not today? Cindy is back with us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. I know the first time we talked to you the first day, it was that kind of one hour back getting a handle on what school was going to look like. How has it been this week? Uh, it's It's been okay. My kids are settling in quite well. Um, you know, mask wearing is definitely happening on the school grounds. Um, I see people as they're getting close to the school grounds start putting their masks on as the crowds, you know, it starts to get more crowded. Um, my kids are saying they're happy to be back. They feel like the protocols at our school are well done in terms of, you know, we wear masks during the hallways. If we're going to the gym, if we're going to the library, we've got our masks on. Um, I would say one of the things that kind of stood out was, you know, the water fountains. They're not letting kids use the water fountains and and I get why but um, you know we we just got to make sure our kids have enough hydration and I hope that there's a backup plan if a kid is needing more water Um, but you know just minor little tweaks here and there and I I know we're pretty fortunate in our district and overall in in the options that have been put out there Um, but I also know we're starting to see some cases in Surrey mostly in the high schools um, so that starts to be a little bit more concerning. Uh, they seem to be from before school started. So we'll see how this rolls out. And with the new website uh, Fraser Health came out with that does put those exposure events on uh, so people can see if there's an exposure in their school. Uh, how do you, do you think that makes a difference as far as parents and getting that information out? I think anytime people have clear uh message or not messaging clear information accurate information factual information it's beneficial um and it stops the speculation and the nervousness when they know exactly what they're dealing with and i have to say although i'm glad to see that site up i have to say our district has already been doing that work and making sure the affected people have been communicated to so that's been good to see i just know that not all districts are running the same as we are in surrey uh, and that's really unfortunate. Uh, so for public schools in Surrey, looking at the the website, there are now nine exposures of, um, like you said, mainly secondary. There are two elementary schools, sorry, three elementary schools on that list. Is it concerning that only one week in, we already have nine schools that have COVID-19 exposures? It, it's always going to be concerning. One case is too many, um, but it's clear that those cases came from outside of the school system. Uh, just like all cases are likely to have started that way. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a tough one. I mean, there's the benefits of being in school and that growth and, and education opportunity for our children uh, to have that routine and all that good stuff. But seeing those cases, it just, it makes you pause, right? It, it it's, it's, it's really hard to watch how different people have to experience this and know all the different things that they have to take into account to keep their kids safe and to keep the teachers safe and the support staff safe. Um, you know, I know the BCTF is going to go to the Labor Relations Board, and I think that they're, you know, in terms of protecting their members, I think that that's a smart move. Um, 
and I hope that it adds the pressure needed to really enforce what the ministry has said is required in our school districts because they're not complying. Not all school districts are complying. And that's what it does sound like. On the one hand, it sounds like where, where your schools are, where your children are in school, like things are being done right. Because we're hearing from other teachers and other parents, though, saying cohorts are fine, but the, you know kids are mixing and maybe it's just for contact tracing. Uh, the cleaning isn't what they thought it would be. In some cases, uh, there are areas that are being missed. So it does seem like it's not, it's not the same every school to every school. No, it's not. And I think that that inconsistency is alarming, um, not only because it's safety driven, but also just frustrating. Why is your kid getting a safer environment than my kid is? And uh, and I think that's a fair statement to say. All districts should be doing this. And if it wasn't for district autonomy that was fought for for years and years and years, I think that we would be, have been in a better position to say to the districts, everybody, you must comply with this. Or these are the ramifications for not complying. Um, the ministry needs to come and say to the districts, heads will roll if these things are are not being done. And, you know, I've seen it before where they come in and they take budgetary things away. Like, it, But that's not going to help the district either. They need to make sure that the people that are making these decisions are held accountable for their actions. All right, Cindy, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, glad to hear that that your experience, at least, it sounds like it's been a pretty positive one this week. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about it again. Thanks for having me, Jill. All right, that is Cindy Dalglish, an education advocate and a parent in the Surrey School District. Well, the numbers today in Canada of COVID-19 cases sitting at 141,606. There have been 9,201 deaths. And I know we've been focused a lot on the numbers in BC, but also looking at provinces such as Quebec and Ontario, where there have also been an increase in numbers. Is it enough to have concerns Concerns about a second wave. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Caroline Colleen, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Thank you so much for being back with us. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing as far as uh, the uptick in numbers right now? It's a great question. I think it's really, really important that we take measures to get those numbers um, back down, or at least, if not lower, you know, not increasing at the rates that they're increasing across Canada. I think it's a concern as we move into fall and as we need and want to have schools open and have other things reopened that we that we learn ways to control this really through individual behavior and measures and you know combining all of the the things we know about because if that continue, that growth continues obviously it's very worrying. What do you think happened as far as when we looked at the numbers a couple of months into the pandemic and granted we have, we had done the closure of so many businesses people were told to stay home but there were a few days there where we had single digit increases uh, some days just a couple of cases did people get too comfortable with that thinking it was done? Um, I think, yeah, there has been this language of the wave and the first wave. And I think, uh, while that's understandable because the shape you know, kind of looks like a wave and it goes up and it goes down, um, we have to understand what caused that decline. That decline happened because of really widespread, really strong distancing measures. 
And as we relaxed those measures, that decline also stopped and, and we started seeing a rise. And so it's not that we eliminated this by immunity. Very few people in Canada, you know, in absolute terms, have had COVID. Uh, and it's not that we eliminated it because, you know, the virus changed and, and somehow went away. We didn't vaccinate. We didn't, you know, take those measures. It declined because we stayed away from each other and we made ourselves a population where it couldn't find enough people to jump to. As we reopened, that changed and we saw those resurgences. And so are we defining second wave incorrectly? Like you said, there's kind of ebbs and flows when we look at the graphs and we look at the numbers. But a second wave, is that when down the road, when people either have had immunity and lose it or the disease makes a resurgence that way? So, right. I mean, you might think of a, of a wave, you know, the classic wave language in epidemiology has often meant, you know, in, the virus comes, people, you know, modulate their behavior a little bit, but a lot of people get it and get immune. And then it sort of fades as, you know, until that immunity changes and, and behavior maybe restarts. That's not what happened here. What happened here was a very sudden decline in the virus strictly because of distancing measures and other public health measures. And so as those are relaxed, you might think this is, you know, the rest of the first wave. Like globally, it hasn't kind of risen and fallen in, in and of its own accord or because of immunity. It's risen and fallen and is now rising again as part of the same phenomenon. I think the other thing about the wave language that can be a bit misleading is this idea that a wave just comes. You know, this doesn't just come. We do things to enable or stop this virus. And I think it's important to understand the extent to which we have some control over what happens here. Is it something then that we can watch other countries as well? We look at parts of China that were in complete lockdown in the beginning of this, where the reports are that things are pretty much back to normal. Do we look then to countries like that or places like that around the globe as they perhaps brace for an actual second wave? Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at other measures in other countries. And I know in China, you know, if you look at city data from different Chinese cities, the, the declines, you know, they'll have the steep rise and they'll have to 60 or 80 or 100 cases. And then they'll have a really steep drop. And that's because of incredibly strict measures, I think, uh, that, that have been taking place. So once someone is identified, they really stay home to the, you know, it's, it's more enforced uh, and we haven't been doing that. So, again, there, it's those measures. That doesn't mean the whole city's immune because they got up to 90 cases and went back down again. The cities may have millions and millions of people in them, and they weren't all exposed. Um, and so th- that leaves their populations vulnerable to more outbreaks like that, which I'm sure they you know, plan to continue controlling. Uh, and we, you know, in Canada, that hasn't been the approach that we've taken, those incredibly strict measures uh, on outbreaks. And so I think it's illustrative to look at those, but as as models for what's going to happen here, um, you know, we have to look at populations where the, the things we do are a bit more comparable to what we think we're going to do here. Right. So if we continue then, and when we hear Dr. Henry say we're sitting at about 65% of contacts, uh, getting back to that of what we were at pre-pandemic, even with the return of school and, and things reopening, if we continue doing that, unless we see a, a huge surge in numbers, do we stay then in the first wave and hope that that continues until there's a vaccine? Or how do you see that playing out? So if we don't, right now it looks like cases are growing and that the, the doubling time is relatively long, so 18 to 20 days probably. I haven't checked recently. 
Um, I mean, I checked a couple of weeks ago, so that might be a couple of weeks out of date. Um, but if that if there is that doubling time and that stays the same, so we double and double and double and double again, then it does get out of control. It just gets out of control later than it would if the doubling time was more like it is in the UK, sort of a week-ish. We don't want to double every week. That's going to lead to thousands of cases in not enough weeks. Um, so we, I think we still do need measures. Cases still look like they're broadly on the rise. Um, I think Dr. Henry's announcements about bars and restaurants and nightclubs, banquet halls, are a really important sign of you know thinking through we will need individuals to make changes to their own activities and indoor parties, but we may also need measures delivered at the provincial level or even nationally uh, to really try to understand and target transmission in the community, because it's really important that we get that down, especially if we're going to keep schools open. And how important is it when you mention immunity that we know exactly how the immunity works, if it's short-lived, if it is there for a certain period of time, and then you're vulnerable again? Right. I think there's some good evidence that, you know, you're not vulnerable again after you've had COVID for a good while. There have been reports of reinfection, but we know it's as far as we know, it's really not the norm. So in terms of what we do with parties, bars, restaurants, workplaces, schools, transit, do you wear a mask? Do you not? It's not critical for our day to day decision making to know that. I think it will be critical to understand if immunity lasts a year or five years or or two years um, as we think about vaccination and, and immunity, how the vaccines, when they're available, how long their immunity lasts. But for the, your kind of immediate day-to-day life, I don't think it's that important to understand right now. And what about the, as we see the numbers in the cases go up, when you talk about the doubling time, how important is testing in that we're being told by the provincial government as well that that's one of the goals is to significantly increase the number of tests? Yeah, I am so excited about the announcement yesterday or the day before about the saline gargle test. This mm-hmm. will be a... Uh, a less invasive and more comfortable way to do testing. And I think that's great, especially for kids, if we're going to be testing uh, in kids. So I'm really excited about that. I think people need to understand that testing, you know, lots and lots of testing is great. And there have been people arguing for like really widespread testing and we should be testing everybody. Uh, Testing is not a cure. So the, the effectiveness of testing relies a lot on what you do after people are tested and the University of Illinois had huge COVID um, problems despite very great testing. And it's not because the testing didn't work. It's because people who tested positive still took risks, went to or hosted parties, and it still spread. So I think it, if, you, if you really widen testing and you do a ton of testing, you do have this challenge of how to follow up. What are people going to do who who have te- tested positive? So it's, it's part of a broader plan, but it's not a magic answer that will solve COVID to do lots of testing. I do think there are plans, there must be plans to widen testing. And I think the saline gargle test is really exciting and, and hopefully part of that. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Caroline Colleen, thank you so much again for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, Caroline is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Taking a look at some poll results, and this is a new Ipsos poll, taking uh, the pulse of Canadians on whether or not they would be in favour of another shutdown or the shutdown of businesses if there was a second wave of COVID-19. And Sean Simpson joins me now, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, I was a bit surprised by the number, uh, how high it is of Canadians saying yes, that they would support another shutdown. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, three quarters of Canadians uh, believe that a second wave is on the way, uh, that it uh, is inevitable. And Dr. Tam said that we're not in it yet. But, you know, for example, in Ottawa, they, they've said that, you know, they're essentially in a second wave. So when that wave comes, if it comes, uh, three quarters believe that, um, you know, we should shut things down. They would support shutting things down like we did in March. And, and I think, you know, the reason is because uh, it was very uh, clear to see uh, the effect of that. Uh, we were on the rise. We shut things down. We uh, were able to uh, to flatten the curve. So uh, I think Canadians are going to the tried, tested and true method and uh are probably hoping that it, it, it doesn't get to that point or that maybe the shutdowns will be more targeted than they were last time. Uh, and did it get into whether or not people, I mean, were people thinking this because of the programs are in place now or, or suggesting that maybe we better, we know how better to deal with a shutdown and to keep people so that they can access help? Yeah, well, I think part of it is that the priority for a lot of people is, is keeping the schools going. Uh, and uh, you know that in and of itself is 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 risky, but 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 is important. Uh, it's important for socialization and learning of the children. It's important to be able uh, to to have that support so that parents can 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 do their day jobs. Uh, and, and so if if we're going to do everything we can to keep the schools open, then we may have to sacrifice in other areas, uh, such as you know bars and restaurants and shopping malls or or whatever it is that we have to do in order to uh, to ensure that uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, doesn't uh, doesn't continue to grow in Canada. Uh, some interesting results as well when you ask Canadians about their personal concerns about getting COVID nineteen. Yeah, uh, two thirds of Canadians uh, agree that they're personally concerned about contracting COVID nineteen. So th- this isn't a you know a, a problem for other people. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians, uh, you, you know, think that they, they're at risk. They're concerned about about uh, contracting it, about the, the health effects and potential for lingering health effects, and all those things that we that we don't know. And and I think that's the the underlying underlying factor uh, driving attitudes in in that two uh, three quarters say. You know, if things are getting bad, let's shut it down because they don't want to get COVID-19. They don't want their family members to get COVID-19. Which makes sense. Uh, you ask people about vaccinations as well. And I know Dr. Henry in, in this province has been opposed to mandatory vaccination, mm-hmm. saying that's not uh, the road she wants to take. But you asked people what they think about that. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a tough sell, right? In, in a democracy, making anything mandatory um, is, is going to raise a lot, lot of eyebrows. Um, that said, uh, uh, we still have a majority, 63% uh, of Canadians who believe that vaccinations against COVID-19, once available, should be mandatory for all Canadians. Now, that's down nine points since we last asked the question in July. So a majority, but a declining majority. Um, and, and I think there are you know, a lot of questions about, uh, you know, where the vaccine's coming from, uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, how often you would need to take the vaccine. Um, and I think in light of all of these unknowns and these, these questions, uh, we've got about one in three Canadians who are saying, yeah, I, I don't know if, if we need to make everybody take take the vaccine. And, and quite frankly, um, you know, it, it could still uh, have high efficacy even if uh, we don't make everybody take it in the country. Uh, you mentioned schools as well and that uh, desire to keep schools open or, or, or along that in that sense. But you also asked people uh, about the opening of schools and whether or yeah. not people felt that it was too quickly or, or how people were feeling about how that was done in their province. 
Yeah, really interesting that uh, that 38 percent of uh, Canadians overall, including 40 percent in B.C., believe that the speed at which schools reopened in the province is too quick, that we're doing things too quickly and and, and putting kids at risk. Conversely, only 9 percent believe that it's been too slow. So on balance to a four to one ratio, um, people believe they're just moving too quickly uh, in, in, in reopening uh, in reopening schools and, and in getting kids back in the classroom. Uh, did you ask people about testing or how what people think about that uh, and about the, the plan, at least here in B.C., to increase the number of tests? Uh, no, we, we haven't. But, you know, it stands to reason that with, with uh, you know, increasing levels of, of concern about contracting COVID-19 and reports that we're hearing across the country that we're now getting into hours long wait lines. You know, it seems that in many places, um, public health officials appear to is almost you know, surprised at the numbers that uh, people that are showing up to get tested and that we've maybe squandered the, the, the summer uh, when we, we had time to prepare for for, um, you know, this this uh, this second wave. So, uh, you know, I think that Canadians want uh, want testing to be uh, available to them uh, and to get those results quickly so that they've got some peace of mind. And when talking about kind of that confidence, and this kind of goes with schools and schools reopening, uh, but you ask people as well, uh, the, their provincial reaction, were they confident in how their province, how their elected officials, uh, their public health officers have been dealing with this? Uh, did you find that people yeah. are confident? Well, approval ratings have been strong uh, up until this point. There's really been, I think, strong satisfaction with how our public health officials and the prime ministers, the premiers have, have been, been dealing with the situation. Um, you know, that said, though, three in 10 Canadians um, disagree that their province is ready to deal with a second wave. So yeah, if, if, in fact, uh, we collectively look unprepared to deal with uh, a second wave, I think um, some 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 of our political political masters are going to you know wear that and, and have a reckoning with with Canadians and, and if we look at at the provincial results uh, we're finding that if some provinces say uh, they're, they're, they're more likely to disagree that their province is ready uh, for example in uh, Saskatchewan Manitoba and Alberta the Prairie provinces more generally more likely to believe their province isn't ready at 25 percent British Columbians one in four think the province isn't ready Hmm, interesting. My guess is you didn't ask people about uh, whether or not they wanted to have a snap election. Uh, well, we did, but it's not released by Global News yet, so stay tuned. <laughs> and over the weekend, you may just hear something about that. All right. Uh, we will stay tuned uh, for sure. <laughs> Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk with you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Sean Simpson, the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. That particular poll was conducted between September 11th and the 14th for Global News. Uh, The sample size, 1,000 Canadians aged 18 and older. They were interviewed online. In this case, the poll is accurate to within plus or minus 3.5 percentage points, 19 times out of 20. Well, the implementation of CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, has started another conversation or perhaps restarted the conversation about an idea of having a guaranteed annual income. Wondering if that is something that could be in the throne speech coming up, wondering if that's something that could be done for Canadians. But what would the cost of a guaranteed annual income actually be? My next guest is here to break down some of the numbers. Tegan Hill is an economist with the Fraser Institute and joins me on the line now. Tegan, thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I know you've uh, taken a look at some some scenarios, uh, put uh, different scenarios together as to what uh, a guaranteed annual income program could look like. So if you can, can you walk us through uh, what what uh, you're looking at and what that would actually cost? Correct. So we looked at a couple different scenarios because, of course, there's so many different versions of a guaranteed income that could come to fruition, which is why it's so uh, such a kind of difficult topic. So we wanted to look at a couple situations. One is, of course, we've heard that, you know, there's lots of calls to extend CERB to an annual, a guaranteed annual income. So let's assume that the Trudeau government did that and adopted a GAI similar to CERB, but you extended those payments annually. That would be an annual cash transfer of $24,000 per working age Canadian. Uh, And the cost under that scenario would be an estimated $465 billion a year. So that's at a time when the national debt is approaching a trillion. Um, And that was the highest cost estimate of the four that we looked at. So um, if we go to the lowest cost estimate that we looked at, we assumed a model which is similar to old age security, which is essentially a basic income for seniors. But we moved that to the working age population they would, uh, the work, working age population would receive then a reduced ca- trash cash transfer around $7,000 annually, and the benefit would reduce as your income rises similar to OAS. And in, in that situation, the net cost is still huge. Uh, it's at approximately $132 billion. So, you know, no, no matter the uh, variant that we're looking at here, there is a substantial cost associated for sure. In the first scenario, though, where, where you're looking at uh, kind of looking at something similar to the CERB for working age Canadians, would the cost not be a bit lower, though, if we're talking about Canadians that are making a salary where they wouldn't qualify or wouldn't need the guaranteed annual income? Right. So that's, you know, another one of these, these specifics and program designs. So a guaranteed annual income um, under this version as a basic universal income would be to all working age population. So, you know, CERB right now is being directed to those people, obviously, who've had their work impacted. Under this case, this would be a way to make sure that, um, or, you know, attempt to make sure that every individual has a certain level of income um, that they can count on every year. But of course, you know, many versions and the ones that we look at here try to reduce that as your income increases because people don't have the same level of needs. So there is an option to do kind of a means tested um, basic income, which would look different, but as, as we've shown here, still, still very expensive. And when we're talking about a guaranteed annual income, uh, and there hasn't been this part of the conversation in the past, when we've talked about this, it's been in under the, the guise of it would take over, it would take the place of the current program. So be it uh, welfare, uh, assistance programs, uh, different benefit programs are available right now. Uh, it doesn't seem that maybe we just haven't got to that point to, or, or that detail hasn't been brought up in the conversation. But do these models look at this would replace? those programs or is it in addition to those programs? So the models that we looked at are in addition to. Um, if you're going to implement a basic income, ideally you want it designed as a basic, or pardon me, as a replacement for the existing welfare system. But that in practical terms, it's very difficult to do, particularly in a country like Canada. You know, we would have to look at the provincial and federal programs. There would need to be a lot of conversation a lot of negotiation 
amongst different governments with different political perspectives, diverse electorates, and um, in reality, it's just a very difficult thing to do to consolidate those programs into a single benefit. So the the work that we did looked at it as an add-on, and certainly a lot of the conversation has been, particularly around kind of a a CERB-based benefit, has been um, in having this as an add-on, but that's just one of the variants that it could take. Are there other countries, though, where this is done? Because because the, the thinking is, if you have a guaranteed annual income, you don't need the other programs. If somebody is getting this this level, that, that they wouldn't then need welfare checks. They wouldn't need these other social assistance programs. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really important part of the conversation because the concept has been talked about so much in the news generally. And it sounds great. You're right. If you can, if you can replace this, uh, the existing welfare system into a basic um, income, there's administrative costs, there's so many benefits and efficiency and all that. But that is very difficult to do. You know, I, in my research, I didn't find an example where that was implemented successfully. Um, certainly, there's pilot programs and programs put forward that would look to have this um, as a replacement model. But again, I think what this paper brings to light specifically on the cost and tax implications, but also um, talking more generally to, we have to really look at the specifics of this because it can sound attractive when it's painted with a broad brush, but we have to look at the practical realities of trying to implement this, what that looks like for replacing programs. Um, You know, I, I can, I can say confidently that it wouldn't be so simple as the provincial and federal governments coming together and saying, these are the programs that we're going to replace and the basic income will step in um, as a replacement for these. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. So if we're talking about something, and I'll I'll go back to the the first scenario that you outlined, if we're talking about a program that comes with a $464 billion with a B price tag, that's more than double what we see for current government spending. What do you think that means as far as tax implications? Right. So we, we looked at the tax implications and first, you know, a common inclination is, okay, let's tax the wealthy. They can pay for this. So we wanted to look at that. And we found that even if the entirety of the disposable income of Canada's top earners, um, and that was for Canadians earning $250,000 or more annually, if that was paid in taxes, it would be insufficient to cover the cost of the program at the higher end and at the lower end. So there's simply not enough revenue to be generated from the um, top income earners to pay for this. So then we looked at a broader based tax like the GST, and we found that the increases to the GST GST required to pay for this program would be blatantly unrealistic. I'll say that. So, So the conclusion of the tax implication work that we did was that to bankroll guaranteed annual income in Canada, the government would almost certainly need to implement a host of tax hikes affecting Canadians across many income levels if it were to pay um, with tax increases. Of course, you can also push this onto the debt burden, but that's already substantial and that comes with its own set of consequences. Uh, In that case, you're basically just pushing this down the road for future Canadians to pay for. All right, Tegan, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks for uh, running through the numbers with us. Appreciate it.
Thank you so much for having me. That is Tegan Hill. Uh, Tegan is an economist with the Fraser Institute, taking a look at some scenarios of possible guaranteed annual income to look at what the price tag for that might be. Well, if you're looking out your window, depending on where you are, and I suppose if you have a window, you likely are still seeing smoke. And that is the smoke that is in our air because of the U.S. wildfires. So how long are we going to be breathing in the smoke? Is there some good news on the horizon? Horizon. Let's bring in Kyle Howe, an air quality planner with Metro Vancouver. Kyle, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, what do we know about how long the smoky skies are going to be with us? So we've had an advisory in place since September 8th, and uh, we are starting to see a bit of good news and do expect that clearing conditions will slowly move into the region starting tonight into tomorrow and through the rest of the weekend. But we still caution people that the advisory is in place and that concentrations still remain elevated throughout the region. And do we know then, uh, obviously we know it's because of the U.S. wildfires, but uh, do, do we see kind of a light at the end of the smoke tunnel? So the U.S. wildfires have contributed a lot of smoke uh, across the Pacific Northwest. And based on models and data that we have, it does look like that smoke is exiting the region. Um, And as we get a change in the weather pattern here, we do expect there should be enough uh, sort of westerly flow to clear out the smoke from this region. Uh, But of course, the fires are still burning down there. And so we still need to keep our eyes on uh, things going on south of the border. And when you talk about the advisory, and I know that advisory has been extended or or has been kept in place because of the smoke, what are some of the dangers of breathing it in, of spending any amount of time in that kind of air? So we typically recommend uh, in our advisories that uh, it's the more sensitive populations. So it's those people with underlying health conditions, such as lung and heart disease, the elderly, uh, infants, that they all reduce their exposure as much as possible to the uh, smoke that's out there. So that's, uh, you know, doing things like limiting your outside physical activity time, seeking out uh, cleaner spaces, et cetera. So it's really targeted at uh, those people to make sure that they're remaining safe. But it also does have an impact on more acute infections like COVID-19. So we recommend that if you're experiencing any symptoms uh, as a result of this, that you consult your healthcare professional. Uh, makes sense, and I'm sure people are, are, will feel that as well, or, or feel, I mean, um, will feel the effects of breathing in uh, that smoke. Earlier on, when this first started coming in and being part of uh, our air, uh, the the fact that we were at at that level of very high risk, a lot of people were comparing the air in Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, uh, to other uh, major cities. And, and at one point, I remember seeing hearing somebody say it was the worst air quality in the world. Was that actually the case? So I think that's a challenging comparison to make. And I think generally Metro Vancouver experiences very good air quality throughout the year. And so that's an important piece to keep in mind when we're talking about these sorts of issues is that this is a very short-term event. And while we did have very high concentrations at various points throughout this event, generally our air quality is quite good. Uh, With regards to the direct comparison to other uh, locations throughout the world, uh, that's also a a challenging uh, sort of comparison to make, especially some of the communities uh, in Oregon and Washington that were very close to those wildfires. Uh, We're likely experiencing much worse air quality conditions than we may have been experiencing up here. But that's not to say that the concentrations we experienced were not uh, extremely high.
And is it is it rare to see it that it's coming in from Washington, from Oregon, from from the United States? And that I know in in summers past uh, we've often had those smoky skies and talked about it when there are fires in the interior, or there are fires in other parts of BC. Is it is it just because of the particular weather patterns that we're seeing it? Uh, and I mean, we don't have the fires here right now, which is good. But is it the weather patterns that are bringing it in from the south? So it certainly has a, a lot to do with the weather pattern that we experienced. A lot of the fires that uh, started in south of us uh, actually started on the Labor Day weekend um, when we were under those hot, sunny conditions. Uh, and that same sort of set of conditions allowed smoke to flow north. Uh, typically, um, you know, we experience we can experience smoke um, from all different areas. This year, uh, British Columbia in general um, had a pretty low number of fires, which was really encouraging to see. Um, but I think the the more concerning thing for us is that you know we've seen now in four out of the last six years uh, these sorts of very extreme wildfire smoke events in our region. Um, so that's something that we're, we're certainly watching um, and you know thinking of things like climate change uh, and how we sort of move forward as a as a region. And, and I know you, you kind of answered this as well, but I, I, people are just waiting for that smoke to clear. There was a bit of a break. Was it on Monday? I think I was seeing pictures of uh, somebody sent me a picture of some sunshine and seeing a shadow. Somebody saying that they were so excited to see the sun break through the smoke, through the clouds, uh, to see that shadow. Uh, I, obviously, it depends on what happens with the wildfires and wildfires burning in the region. But uh, once it's cleared, do, do we do we expect that that uh, how long does it take? I guess once the air clears, till we get that better quality back? So that's a really good question. And uh, I think I'll, I'll first sort of say, I, you know, I also had a lot of people sort of saying, oh, well, we can see the sun in blue sky. And I think it's important to remember that just because uh, you can see some of those features, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ground level concentrations are, are low. So in that case, we did see concentrations decreasing, but they're still quite elevated and they're, um, you know, impactful to people uh, people's health across the region. So um, we do encourage people to keep an eye on our website, airmap.ca, for the current advisory, which will provide information about uh, sort of the state of the air. Uh, with respect to sort of the clearing that we're expecting, I think, uh, you know, it's going to take some time. We have a lot of smoke in the area. Uh, the fires produced a lot of smoke, and uh, it can often get trapped in, in sort of our region um, because of the geography that we have. So, I, I know that people want the smoke to be gone as quickly as possible, but um, it, may, it may take some time uh, through tomorrow and, and um, possibly even tomorrow afternoon until we're really back to more clean air. All right. And is it, is it rare to have the smoke stay and linger for this long? So again, I think you know we've we've certainly been concerned that we've seen this start to happen now. Uh, as I said, in four out of the six years uh, previous to this, that um, we've had these sort of long-term events, uh, and really, it's it's partially an artifact of the weather condition that we're experiencing. So we get stuck under these very stable conditions, and it just is really hard to uh, remove the smoke. We need sort of stronger flows at the surface um, to bring in that cleaner marine air. And we just haven't seen that um, uh, so far in this event. And that's true of other events. But uh, again, I think um, the concern is that, you know, with a changing climate, we could uh, start to see these events occur more often uh, for our region. And so I definitely encourage people to, to prepare uh, sort of in the off season um, their, their homes for sort of, uh, you know, feeling wildfire smoke impacts. All right. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, some good news uh, looking forward in the next few days. Kyle, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Kyle Howe is an air quality planner with Metro Vancouver talking about that smoke that is still pretty heavy lingering out there in the air. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the BC Teachers Federation has applied to the Labour Relations Board with concerns about how back to school has been unfolding. And BCTF President Terry Mooring joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. The BC Teachers Federation, uh, you've told the members that an application has gone to the LRB. You are looking for changes to what you are calling haphazard implementation of health and safety measures. What specifically are you concerned with? Well, we've been working, as you know, on the work groups and steering committee for months now, trying to affect changes to improve the uh, restart plan from government. And we haven't been able to effectively do that. And so we know that protective measures aren't in place as they should be. But on top of that, we're now experiencing issues where the health and safety measures that are supposed to be in place are not being applied evenly across the province. So we're hearing situations where districts are um, are, are not in, in enforcing the mask policy, for example, for middle schools and secondary schools. We're hearing of classrooms not being cleaned uh, consistently. We're hearing that uh, there are teachers that are still challenged um, to be able to get a face shield from um, administration or a mask even. And so, you know, what we're seeing is the safety measures that are in place are not, there's no oversight, there's no enforcement. And so for an individual classroom teacher, there are very few avenues to get their issues addressed quickly. Um, We don't have anything in place right now um, in which, you know, these uh, concerns that are health and safety concerns that are the layers of of protection can be immediately addressed. Um, All of the uh, processes we have in place are for contract disputes. And so they take time and they're intended to take time and intended to take multiple meetings so that, you know, the the parties can come to an agreement. But we're in a pandemic. So the concerns that we're bringing up right now need to be addressed quickly. And there's no, you know, place for that to happen. We heard earlier today from the Education Minister, Rob Fleming, saying he's been pleased with the way things have gone. He was asked about uh, this uh, difference uh, between what you're saying and what he's saying. Uh, didn't didn't really uh, go into that, said he couldn't comment because of the application to the LRB. Uh, but what do you say when you hear the Education Minister say that he's pleased with how things have happened so far? Well, you know, he's not speaking to teachers, um, and, and we're hearing from them. And so there's a lot of concern, and there's a lot of, um, you know, of anxiety. And, and that's been going on for some time, and it's only increasing. So, you know, for example, we've just heard that Alberta has, their, has had their first case of an in-school transmission of the virus. We're trying to avoid that in BC. And the only way to do that, as we know, is through preventative measures. So we have, you know, social distancing and wearing masks. Neither of those are in place in classrooms. So right now, where, you know, we have a lot of the province that has really poor air air quality because of the smoke, we have students not going outside, we have them in crowded classrooms, and we have them there, you know, without wearing masks. And so, you know, this is very problematic um, in terms of health and safety, and teachers are concerned. We have tried to work with government to get those concerns addressed. Uh, we find that they're being diminished and dismissed, and so we're looking to the Labour Board for some support. Uh, so what can the Labour Board actually do? So the, Section 88 is not a very um, well-used process. 
Um, we're hoping that through this process, so um, that government will come to the table and listen to our concerns and, and you know, really work them out with us. Um, again, we've tried to do that at the working groups and the uh, steering committee, and our teachers have worked really hard, and they put forward really strong arguments as to why we should have these measures in place. Um, but, you know, it hasn't happened. And so, you know, we know that the government has put in $45.6 million into cleaning uh, measures. Um, we know that the federal government put in money as well. It's it's clearly not enough to both provide a remote learning option for families and to reduce classroom density. And we're hearing this from district to district. So they're having to make really tough choices right now. And in some cases, if they want to provide remote learning where, you know, a teacher is connected to each student, then they're having to increase class sizes. We're, we're having, you know, teachers surplused in some situations. And so, you know, this isn't acceptable. We're in a pandemic. We need to be able to, you know, rest assured that uh, a high priority is being placed on our um, students' safety and on teachers' safety. And we're not satisfied that that's the case. Uh, are you hearing as well or, uh, or, or, I mean, we know that there are, there have been COVID exposures in some schools. Uh, the Fraser Health Authority's website shows a number of schools in Surrey, uh, one in Delta. Uh, do you know, has there been any transmission of COVID-19 in the schools? My understanding is there hasn't been um, up until now. Um, again, Alberta has just registered their first case. We don't want to see that in BC, you know, and we know that the most effective way to limit or prevent transmissions of the virus is through physical distancing and wearing masks. And again, neither of those measures are, are mandated or even required in classrooms. Um, the only place masks are required is in middle schools and secondary schools. That's only in high traffic areas like hallways or on buses. Those are the only places where children are required to wear masks. Now, I, I will say that a lot of teachers are working really hard um, to uh, create a culture of mask wearing. And some districts are doing a really good job of encouraging that and sending communications home to families to that effect. You know, that needs to happen across the board. Um, it's not. Um, unfortunately. And we've had school districts refusing to implement the, even the requirement of, of, of mask wearing. Um, so, you know, we've been really concerned about this. It, it is very haphazard across the province. There is no oversight and there is no enforcement. And so, you know, well, you know, certainly the minister can talk to superintendents and find out how things are going. In terms of classroom teachers, we're hearing a very different story. Uh, do you think if nothing changes, will there start to be teachers refusing to work? We have a high level of concern out there. So there are situations in schools where, you know, we have teachers that um, have medical concerns or they have family members with medical concerns, and, and they're very concerned, um, especially when they see these layers of protection not consistently being applied. And so, you know, we wouldn't be going to the Labour Board unless we had very significant issues that were not being addressed. And we're hearing, you know, from our members that they are highly concerned. And we know that families trust us. Families trust us to keep their children safe. And we need to be able to, you know, assure families that we're doing everything we can to make sure schools are safe. And that's another reason why we're going to the Labour Board. Right. But if nothing changes, will teachers in some cases stop going to work? You know, we're already having a situation where teachers are having to make hard choices between whether they're able to work or take an unpaid leave. And again, or, you know, take unpaid days. That's not acceptable. 
Um, we all need to be able to work in a safe environment. Teachers are workers, and they need to, you know, we need to assure them that um, we're doing all we can to make sure schools are safe. And so that's, you know, that's what we're doing. We are um, trying to really ensure that, first of all, the safety measures that we've been promised are consistently applied, applied across the province, and there's some oversight there. And secondly, we need to increase those protective measures. All so right. physical distancing, wearing masks, you know, these are things that we see present in other services, in other parts of our lives. The only place we don't see them present are in schools. All right, Terry, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks again so much for your time. Thanks so much, Jill.